People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. We are thrilled to welcome John Meacham to Health Gig today. John, first and foremost, is a friend. We were honored to have him speak at both my parents' funerals this year and last year. He's also an amazing presidential biographer who's written about Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and my father, George H.W. Bush. And the truth is, he knows more about our family than, well, our family does. I would bet he knows who my second cousin is, thrice removed. We'll test him later. He's also a formidable tennis partner. And so thank you, John, for being on our podcast today. I am honored to do it. I do whatever Doro and Trisha say. So Mm -hmm. here we are. Good. Perfect. Thank you, John. John, we view health through a lens of integration, and that includes mind, body, and spirit. So we want to ask you first, who the healthiest presidents are, mind, body, and spirit, and then tell us who the unhealthiest presidents are, (laughs) mind, body, and spirit. (laughs) That's what your father would call a hanging curveball. So that's an easy one. On the most adjusted side, there's an absolute connection between physical well-being and attention to that and overall, to use your term, integration of character, of maintaining one's energy and equal poise amid the maelstrom of that office. Very few Americans have been as close to this as you have, Doro. So you've seen this with both your father and your brother, both of whom were incredibly attentive to their physical well-being, not only because they're two of the most competitive men who ever drew breath, (laughs) which compels us to acknowledge, but also because I think they knew that they needed to have energy to use for the ultimate benefit and the common good. So their personal well-being was connected to their capacity to be sound stewards of the public good and the public health in a metaphorical sense. George W. Bush, I think, was probably the most, in our modern sense of fitness, was probably the most. I've talked to him before about how he loved riding the bike As you know, he'd go out to the Secret Service training facilities and places outside Washington to do it. And he loved riding with people, but he also wanted them all to stay behind him for most of it. (laughs) True. Which I thought was interesting because if you have the nuclear codes, you don't really need to ask. We're going to naturally do that. And then he would say, unleash Chang or whatever it was, (laughs) and they would all race forward. Going way back, Washington was one of the reasons he had his role in public life was because of his physical bearing. Abigail Adams thought he was the greatest horseman America had ever seen in an era when that really mattered. He projected a sense of calm and authority and dominance, really, because he was quite tall. People weren't that tall then, and he was way up there anyway. Thomas Jefferson was a great walker. He used to call it carrying the gun, and he would take a gun out. I don't think he shot it very much, but it was part of his exercise at Monticello. Jackson was a great horseman, although he had two bullets in him when he became president, so it was a little uncomfortable, (laughs) which happens. If if you settle most disputes with duels, that's a a byproduct. 
and also in a more complicated way, Franklin Roosevelt's really interesting on this for all the obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine midsummer 1921, you have the most famous political name in America. Your cousin has been president. You ran for vice president in 1920. Nobody remembers this, but he was on the fabled Cox Roosevelt ticket, which I'm sure you all have talked about before. On the- mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to go over such well-worn ground as 1920 <laughs> presidential tickets. And he was a great golfer and dashing and handsome. Goes to a Boy Scout camp on his way to Campobello up near you all in Maine and mm-hmm. comes down with polio and wakes up and never walks again. His capacity to will himself back into the arena is one of the great stories in American history, really, because, as Churchill put it in an essay he wrote about Roosevelt in the 1930s, long before their wartime relationship, not one man in 10,000 would ever have left the house again, and not one man in a million could have risen to the top of the hurly-burly of the political arena of such a vast country from a wheelchair. It's really remarkable. The speech we all remember, of course, is the March 1933 inaugural address when he says the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. If you read the rest of the paragraph, which fortunately you have me, so you don't have to. Right. uh, (laughs) Thank God. uh, He said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning fear, which paralyzes us and turns advance into retreat. Fascinating that he used the word paralyzed. Yeah. And and incredibly revealing. You don't have to be Dr. Freud to see the significance of that. So those are the ones who were clearly engaged in and understood that health mattered enormously. On the other side, you know, we've had some lethargic leaders. We've had some who were more self-indulgent than others. I think we can fill in those blanks. Um, (laughs) We may even have one, present tense. And I do think it matters because not simply because you live longer and presumably that's a good thing, but if you don't pay attention to your own heart rate, if you will, it's very hard to shape the heart of the country. What about the spirit side? How would you see the importance of spirit to the presidency who stands out? The presidents who've led us through the darkest times. FDR would be a great example of someone who was resolutely buoyant in the face of the most ferocious gravity, (laughs) to torture that metaphor a bit. President Reagan, a child of the Midwest, but who had very much adopted the frontier mentality, loved that ranch up there, loved the horses, loved clearing brush, which President Bush, 43, also liked to do. I'm not sure what it is about presidents that they like cutting down trees and moving them. I think it's because they can't get anyone else to do what they want. (laughs) The one one sphere of life where they can actually just do something and see that they've accomplished it. Your father, there's unquestionably a link between his sense of what FDR called the science of human relationships and the way he led. My favorite story about this in talking about empathy, which, of course, is a manifestation of spirit, is the great story about your dad at Greenwich Country Day School in the 1930s was the best athlete. And there was an annual obstacle course race that he always won. Mm -hmm. And so in the last year before he went off to Andover, the faculty said, why don't you give everyone a head start? So he said, fine. However, Dana Carvey would have said, fine, at age 13, fine. Uh, (laughs) And everybody went off. And he's going through a series of barrels on the ground, and he pops out, and he looks to his right, and there's a rotund lad, as your father put it, Bennett (laughs) McNichol, who was stuck in the barrel. He pulls Bennett out. 
then realizes it would be ungentlemanly to just eat someone you just helped. So he says, come on, Bennett, we'll finish this together. And it was the nicest thing anyone had ever done for Bennett McNichol. I didn't hear the story from the president. I heard it from somebody. And I went to him and I said, Mr. President, I just heard this story about Bennett McNichol. And he said, Bennett, he loved lunch. So the president, actually not <laughs> here, sir. <laughs> Is he still eating a lot? Sir, I really don't. <laughs> so the spirit of George Herbert Walker Bush was pull the kid out of the barrel, help him, lend a hand. And that seems sentimental. It's a schoolboy story and all that. But cut to the first week of November 1989, the Berlin Wall falls, the most vivid symbol of what President Kennedy called the long twilight struggle against communism. And your father won't go to Berlin. He'll barely mention it. Leslie Stahl and Dick Gephardt right. and all these people are pounding on him saying, you don't get it, you don't get it. Of course he got it. He was thinking about somebody who was stuck in a barrel. He was thinking right. about Gorbachev. And he knew that if he went to the Brandenburg Gate and rubbed Gorbachev's face in it, it would make Gorbachev's life difficult. We live in a safer and better world because George H.W. Bush had a spirit of empathy that led him to pull the kid out of the barrel and led him to take a political hit. George H.W. Bush is the only man I know who would not have gone to Berlin. Right. Any American president would have gone. But his spirit told him that the thing to do was be prudent, be calm. And ultimately, that would serve a greater good. And it did. In the field of mindfulness that Dora and I work in, authenticity is often associated with leadership. How critical do you think authenticity is for leadership in the political sphere? <laughs> There's that old <laughs> saying, if you can fake authenticity, you've got it made. Right, right. <laughs> I think it was Eliot, T.S. Eliot, who wrote that we put on faces to meet the faces we meet. I think that's in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, but you can check <laughs> me on that. It might be the wasteland. The mask of command, the face we all, all of us, but particularly people who are the object of all eyes and the subject of all attention, are particularly given to forming a public face. The great ones stick with it. And the question becomes, is the mask really who you are? And at what point does the mask become you, at least in the terms of the execution of your public duty? The presidents we memorialize, the presidents we commemorate, the ones we want to emulate, they sort of trip off the tongue pretty easily, right? It's, right. it's Washington, it's Lincoln, FDR, it's Kennedy, it's Reagan, it's Bush. There have been 44 of these guys, and there are only a dozen or so, Eisenhower, Truman. It's a more modest group that you would want to build monuments to and think about. What all those folks had in common was they were true to the masks they made. None of them are perfect. None of them is without blemish. The way I like to think of it is the best we can hope for is that imperfect people will leave us a more perfect union. I think that in a democratic republic, lowercase d, lowercase r, you can't get away with faking it too long. You can fool some of the people some of the time, right? You know, that can happen. But ultimately, the truth will out. If it's the core, core truth or if it's the truth you've at least developed for the arena – as long as you're true to that, seems to me you're going to serve better, be happier. That's another hugely important connection in leadership is what is the connection between personal well-being mm. and the public discharge of duty? Bush 43 has said to me, which I think is really interesting, one of the things he learned from reading about Lincoln was how to get the generals right and strategy and Congress, you know, the stuff you would think of. Mm -hmm. But a really revealing thing is he, George W. Bush, couldn't have imagined what it would have been like to spend the day fighting wars and then going upstairs to a wife who was unhappy or off balance in some way, which Mary Todd Lincoln was. 
So he was able to go upstairs and Laura was a ballast. Mm-hmm. And I think that gave him the capacity to endure some of the greatest crises we've ever endured. So the health of a family yes. is hugely important. And you watched this, right? I mean, you were there very much during the first Gulf War. It mattered enormously to your right. father. I'm, I'm sure you know this, but it's certainly in the diary. He would go upstairs and you and your mother and Marvin might be around. He loved that. He spent, I think I'm right, that on one of the days where he was either authorizing the air strikes or maybe they were going. I think he was working on some kind of mortgage document for you. And he loved that. (laughs) You were buying a house. And here he is launching the forces of the United States across the world with 500,000 guys in the desert. And he wants to make sure your interest rate is set. <laughs> you know, so and, and that's not a distraction. That was Real the life. reason he was fighting that war was because he wanted people to have the kinds of relationships, have the liberty to have those familial ties. I think all of this is connected. You can't isolate this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of when George became president and he said to me, I want you all at Camp David every weekend. So We went that first weekend and second weekend, and then I thought to myself, ooh, I don't want to overstay. So I called his office, and I said, well, we won't be coming to Camp David this weekend. (laughs) And so I get this call. What? What the hell? You're not (laughs) Why aren't you coming to Camp David this weekend? And I said, well, it's because I don't want... He said, I told you, anytime I'm there, I want you there. It really is important to be around family. And so, same idea. Absolutely. If you chose the best traits of every president and put it into one president, what would that president look like? I can give you four really quick. You would want the intellectual curiosity of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was able to write what became the most important sentence ever rendered in the English language, that we're all created equal and endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, because he had been part of the broad transatlantic intellectual shifts that had happened really since Gutenberg introduced movable type, the Protestant reformations, the European Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, Copernicus, everything that had been shifting from superstition and accepted authority to individual reason and individual rights. The American Revolution, which continues as we speak, was the clearest political manifestation of that shift in Western life from hierarchy to democracy. And he was able to write that, not least because he had been curious about what was unfolding in the world. I would want the capacity for public candor of an FDR who said in 1942, when America was reeling from Pearl Harbor, that the news is going to get worse and worse before it gets better and better, and the American people deserve to have it straight from the shoulder. He was willing to give us bad news and treat us like grown-ups. This goes to Trisha's authenticity point. He knew intuitively that we were grown-ups, and if he tried to slip a fast one past us, it would backfire in the fullness of time. I would want the empathy, as we talked about, of George H.W. Bush. And I think the humility, and this is not a word that you often hear in this kind of conversation, but you would need the humility to admit that you made a mistake and therefore the capacity to learn from it that President Kennedy displayed between the Bay of Pigs, which was the failed invasion of Cuba in 1961, and the successful resolution of the missile crisis in October 1962. There's a direct connection between the mismanagement in his first three or four months in office, 
He then had a conversation with President Eisenhower, who said, look, this is how you have to do this. And Kennedy applied what Eisenhower had told him when the news of offensive nuclear weapons in Cuba, 90 miles away from Florida, 15 minutes away from Washington, casualty estimates if there'd been a hemispheric exchange of weapons in the fall of 62 ranged between 70 and 100 million Americans. So everything was on the line. Because Kennedy had had the guts to say, I'm not doing this right, I need to do it better, and asking the last person on earth before whom he wished to appear in need of tutelage, which was his predecessor. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said, no one wants a predecessor or a successor, (laughs) particularly at that level, right? He was humble enough, not a word you associate with Jack Kennedy, but humble enough to acknowledge error and learn from it. If you could get somebody with 2.5 of those four things or so, we'd be in good shape. How important is it for a president to have a creative outlet? I know with 43, his creative outlet came after the presidency, but he says he goes into his art studio for five hours and it feels like five minutes. It's really hard. It's vitally important, but my Lord, you know, just the toll that the job takes. And this is true. You don't have to just be president of the United States for this to be relevant. It's any job of responsibility or authority, any position, I should say. So running a household, running a bank branch, you know, whatever it is, anyone who has other people depending on them knows what it's like to become a kind of human ATM, right? No one makes a deposit <laughs> before right. taking money out. And so that's why it's so important. It's a great point to bring up. It's so important to find some way to rebuild your own capital because your role in life is at that point to give and not to take is a little strong there, but not to exercise what I think folks call self-care. So in that sense, I think both the physical activity, your father's horseshoes, the golf, the tennis, the energy he took from just being around people. He raised hospitality to an athletic art. Right? <laughs> so true. Only your mother doing most of the pitching, but <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, but you know, he saw life as a long reunion mixer. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you've had this experience since he died. There were at least thirty thousand people who thought they were George Bush's best friends. Oh, definitely. At least. at least, and they might be right. For him, creativity was the art of friendship. For your brother, as you say, afterward, it was painting. I think in the White House, I think it was both the exercise and that reading competition he had with Karl Rove. He read a gazillion books. That's a technical historical term, a gazillion. (laughs) Uh, I think for him, I think he'd agree with this, the ability to go upstairs, to be with Laura, the girls when they were there, and then just to slip into a different world through a book was in itself a restorative and creative enterprise because he could imaginatively go back to where other presidents were dealing with seemingly insuperable problems, but we got through them. That had to have a tonic effect. What else do you think we should know before I give you a quiz? (laughs) (laughs) I think on the mindfulness side, on the holistic side, I think common sense goes a long way. There's a great American capacity to assess situations as they are. And I think as hard as it is, I've got to go figure out today when I'm going to go hit tennis balls because I got to get ready for the cook cup. Yes, for our match. Uh, And it's hard and it's painful, but I'm going to think better later if I do it. It's just common sense. 
what I think history tells us is that the seemingly transient human questions, is somebody in shape? Is somebody happy? Is somebody stopping after two drinks and not three, you know, in Nixon's case, for instance? Are there friends who are there to actually be friends or are there friends there to be courtiers and actually what they really need is this or that? All these things matter enormously because the state, the country, is a quintessentially human undertaking. Politics is not clinical. We get the government we deserve, which is a very difficult and perhaps uncomfortable fact to confront sometimes. But in a republic, our dispositions of heart and mind matter enormously because they find their fullest expression in the state of the whole. And that's the majesty and the mystery of democracy. If we take care of ourselves, ultimately, the country will be better taken care of, too. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you. Before we wrap up here, I actually have a quiz for you because you know more about our family than we do. And you're in luck. It only has one question. Okay. My dad gave me a turtle. What was that turtle's name? Oh, you know, you got me. (laughs) I knew I did. His name was Lefty. I named it after him. I love that. (laughs) How old were you? Eight. So that would have been 1967. Can I at least get some partial credit? (laughs) (laughs) I release that fact to you for your next book. Well, I could call it Lefty, Untold Tales. (laughs) Yes, it could be a whole book, actually. Now, I think you should tell your listeners about the 1966 carpool ride. Uh, No. (laughs) This is family friendly. Are you sure we can't hear about the 1966 carpool story? (laughs) No. We'll tell them another time. (laughs) Well, for your listeners, you should go to Trisha and Doro's book and go to my book and you should find out what Doro said about her father's campaign for the house in 1966. That'll get them racing to Amazon for you. Yes, okay, well. good. All right. Well, John, thank you. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs> <laughs>